Well, what a wonderful, wonderful weekend to celebrate. The 4th of July, Independence Day. We celebrate our wonderful nation. We celebrate the opportunities this nation affords us. We celebrate who we believe made this possible for us, which is our Lord and our God. You know, um, I'm always, I think, more aware of as an immigrant than most people who were born and raised in this. And I'm, I am more aware of just what a privilege it is for us to be in the United States. I remember getting sworn in as a citizen back in the day in my suit with about 150 people and my wife was there and how it was just teary-eyed. It was a grateful moment where I was able to become a citizen of this nation. I'll never forget it and I'm always thankful to the Lord for it. But if you've lived elsewhere in the world, if you've traveled much, not just to vacation spots, but to where people actually live, you will know that this is certainly something to be thankful for. Amen? Oftentimes, when a person is unhealthy, they can move back to being healthy by replacing something in their life. It's just there needs to be a replacement of something. I mean, some of the more extreme examples would be like when somebody... <clears throat> can, can uh, be brought back to a healthy state by replacing their failing heart with a functional heart. There's a replacement, something that's failing with something that's functioning. The same thing is true for somebody who can be brought back to a healthier state by replacing their failing kidneys with functional kidneys. They can be brought back to health by this principle of replacement, right? This is also true spiritually for you and I. That darkness can be replaced only with light. And that's why whenever somebody struggles with a lot of darkness in their life, I always encourage them, add light. <laughs> Don't fight darkness, add light. Embrace light. How do you embrace it? The Word of God, the will of God, the principles of the, of the Word. Amen? A person can replace their discouragement, their disillusionment. They can replace it with the hope of God. By searching after God's promises. So my point is that the replacement principle is powerful in bringing healing and wholesome to a person in so many areas in your life. But in the same way, as you walk through a very complicated world where the culture is on fire, it is very healing and it's very hopeful. As a matter of fact, it's very refreshing and it's very exciting to turn your eyes and your heart away from your identification with this world to rather identifying with God's kingdom instead. Now, I'm saying that it's so much better to do that and it's so refreshing and it's so hopeful and it's so exciting to do it, but really it's a command for you and I to do so. To turn our eyes off of this world that we live in and turn our eyes onto the kingdom that we live for. The unshakable, everlasting, never-ending kingdom of God is the only possible place of hope and security for any human. You're not going to find hope and security in this world. You're not going to find hope and security in your career. You're not going to find hope and security in other people. You'll find hope and security in the kingdom of God. That's the only possible. God designed it that way. And we will search and be disappointed. We will search, chase after, and be disillusioned throughout our lives until we make this decision that my hope, my security is in the kingdom of God. So today, I would like to talk about some of the most basic concepts regarding this kingdom of God. If somebody had to ask you, what is the kingdom of God? What would your answer be? Is the kingdom of God already here? What would your answer be? Is the kingdom of God still to come? What would your answer be to that question? So to start off with today, I would like to lay a very, very basic foundation regarding what the kingdom of God is and how we ought to respond to that kingdom of God. Who is part of this kingdom of God? How do they become part of this kingdom of God? 
You see, we have been trained and raised to understand republic, not really so much anymore, but we now understand democracy, we think we do, which is so far, as far as we know, as you look past the history of humanity, that democracy is so far the best possible way of governance. It has produced by far the greatest freedom and offered the most opportunity and has afforded the greatest amount of wealth, but it's still not a kingdom. And so it's very difficult for an American who is democracy-minded to embrace the idea of God's kingdom-mindedness because God's Word is, in fact, He wrote it with the idea of a kingdom in mind and not a democracy. So I have to lay a foundation. Bear with me. I think you'll greatly benefit from it. Number one, I'd like for us to look at the scriptural emphasis not on democracy or republic, but kingdom. God's kingdom. Matthew 3, verse 1 through 2. It says, Now in the days, in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This translation says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those two are interchangeable. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. God wasn't establishing two different kingdoms. This is John the Baptist. Mark 1 verse 14 through 15 says, Now after John had been taken in custody, he was arrested and taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. This was the message. Then we see in Luke 4, verse 43, But he said to them, Jesus, I must preach the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. I must preach the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Here we discover the very purpose Jesus came to the earth was to preach to you and I the kingdom of God. What is this kingdom? Why does the church, why can the church not necessarily define what this kingdom is? When in fact this was the purpose for Jesus' coming. Luke 8 verse 1 says, Soon afterward, Jesus began going around from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. This was his message. He was proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. Luke 9 verse 2 says, And he, Jesus, then sent out, sent them out, the disciples, to proclaim that same message. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Luke 9 verse 60 says, But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere. What? God's goodness? No. God's love? No. The kingdom of God. Luke 16, 16 says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. This is so interesting. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. So here Jesus very clearly draws the line. If you're a dispensationalist of any, of any degree, let me tell you, that's where Jesus draws the line. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John the Baptist. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed and everyone is forcing their way into this kingdom. They're forcing their way into this kingdom. Because God touches them, they can't but run for the kingdom. You see, it takes God to want God. When God touches your life, you will search and keep on searching until you find. You will knock and you will keep on knocking until that door is open. You will ask and you will keep on asking until it is given to you. Do you understand what I'm saying? Let's read that verse again. It says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached. When the gospel is preached, everybody called and chosen by God, forces their way into this kingdom. They keep on searching until they find. They keep on knocking until the door is opened. 
They keep on asking until they receive the answer from God. Acts 1 verse 3. It says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering. So it's talking about when Jesus rose from the dead, right? He presented himself to these alive after his suffering. But many convincing proofs, or by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning what? The kingdom of God. So here we see Jesus appears to people for 40 days after he rose from the dead. And what was he talking to them about? Man, it was dark down there. No. <laughs> Man, I'm so glad I'm back. No. He was telling them, persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. Acts, 22, uh, Acts 28 verse 23. Let me go to Acts 19 verse 8. And he, the apostle Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about what? The kingdom of God. For three months, he was debating people, trying to convince them and persuade them about this brand new kingdom that was just ushered in by John the Baptist and Jesus himself. This was John's work, persuading people about the kingdom of God. Excuse me, this was Paul's work. In Acts 28 verse 23, when they had set a day for the apostle Paul, they came to him at his lodging, at his home, in large numbers. And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and testifying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. Just watch this, okay? When Paul preached, what did he preach? The kingdom of God. And how do you enter the kingdom of God? Through Jesus Christ. He just preached to them the kingdom of God for three months. Now he's at home, the Bible says. And now many group, large groups of people were coming to his home. And from morning to evening, he was preaching and persuading them about the kingdom of God and the fact that Jesus is the way into the kingdom of God. And then it says, he preached to them this concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, if you have that verse in front of you, you'll be shocked by it. Because here are two very new things to us as a church. He preached the kingdom of God, not the love of God, not the grace of God, not the kindness of God, not the goodness of God. He preached the kingdom of God. And accessing that kingdom through Jesus Christ alone. And he preached this, it says right here, from the law of Moses and the prophets. That's how he preached Jesus. Let's turn to Exodus. I'll show you Jesus. Let's turn to Genesis and Leviticus. I'll show you the kingdom of God. Let's turn to Numbers. I'll show you the door to the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Joshua. Let's turn to Judges. I'll show you Jesus. Let's turn to Ruth. I'll show you Jesus, the door to the very kingdom of God. This is how, this is how the Apostle Paul preached. We don't hear that anymore, right? John 3, 3 says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born again, regenerated by an absolute miracle of God, turned into a brand new creature, only that creature can see the kingdom of God. Nobody else sees it. Nobody else even knows that it's there. Nobody else even identifies it. Most don't even want it. Governments are threatened by the idea. But only the new creature. Oh, there it is. And today, I would like to show you the kingdom of God. Now, I read to you multiple verses there. And, and I had to stop because I had about 12 pages of, and this is the kingdom of God verses. <laughs> it's so front and center. It is the absolute centerpiece to all of scriptures. The kingdom of God. 
So by looking at these verses, we conclude that Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God. That preaching this message, the message of the kingdom of God, was Christ's purpose for coming to this world. We just concluded that. The Old Testament, the law, and the prophets were taught. But in the New Testament, the kingdom of God was taught. And Paul, by teaching the Old Testament prophets and the Old Testament law, he was able to teach this New Testament kingdom of God. The message Paul preached was to persuade people towards this kingdom. We also concluded that one time Paul preached the kingdom of God for three months. <laughs> and then later again, Paul preached the kingdom of God from morning until evening out of the Old Testament. And we also concluded that the born-again experience is the introduction to citizenship in this kingdom of God. So I hope to have clarified that there's a scriptural emphasis upon this kingdom, the kingdom of God. The second question is, well, what is this kingdom of God? What is it? What did it mean when Jesus said, the kingdom of God draws near to you? What did the Apostle Paul mean when he said, we have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His Son? What did the Apostle Paul mean? Why did he say kingdom? You see, this kingdom concept is very important to, to Christian theology today, and I want to mention that social justice work is not kingdom work. Again, Social justice work is not kingdom work. Only redeemed people can do kingdom work. Only people in that kingdom can work for that kingdom. Scott McKnight from Seedbed Ministries did a conclusive study regarding the kingdom concept as he considered it from different views. He went and he studied kingdom concepts from the Old Testament view. He studied it from the New Testament's perspective. Then he studied it from Josephus' perspective. That's Flavius Josephus. He's an ancient historian. Then he studied it from the Dead Sea Scrolls' perspective. And he came to the conclusion that whenever we consider the word kingdom, there would have to be five ideas to play. The five ideas are, are, are very, very present inside of this concept of kingdom. And he looked at all those different perspectives and he found a common concept for kingdom. And that common concept always has five, five, you know, ideas at play. The first is that in order for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king, right? There can be no kingdom if there's no king. Secondly, that there, uh, this king has to actually rule. And this king rules in two ways. First, he rules by redeeming and rescuing those that are His. In the, in the Old Testament, it's more clear to us in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, kings always used to go to battle to fight, right? We see this example in David, where the Bible says, And David, when it was time for kings to go to battle, he decided to stay home. Kings used to go to battle in the spring. But David decided to stay home, and that's when he was walking on his... You know, his patio and he saw Bathsheba. But that's the time kings used to go and fight. For what? For their people. For what? So that they can have freedom. So kings are fighters. They go to battle. And a king fights for the freedom of his people. One Colossians, 1, uh, Colossians 1 verse 3 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is a king, and the way he rules is he rules by saving his people. This was so significant for me to know, since our King Jesus ruled from the cross as he hung there with a crown on his head. Just think about it. Pilate demanded, then put the sign above him that says, this is the king of the Jews. And there he hung bleeding with a crown, a, thorn, a crown of thorns on his head. 
You see, he was ruling in the act of redeeming his people. He was hanging there fighting for your freedom and my freedom. He was fighting for us as he hung on that cross with a crown of thorns on his head. That's how he rules. He fights for you. But there's a second way he rules. He rules by governing. See, in England, currently we have the Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Soon it will be King Charles. And uh, Queen Elizabeth currently reigns, but she does not rule. The reign of a king or a queen speaks of the span of time they occupy the position of king or queen. There's, you see, there's a difference between reigning and ruling. Queen Elizabeth rules, but she doesn't reign. Uh, excuse me. Queen Elizabeth reigns, but she doesn't rule. Her reign speaks of the time span that she spends on that throne as a figurehead, even though she does not rule. Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain is the longest reigning monarch in British history. She celebrated 65 years on the throne in February 2017. But to rule is different than to reign. To rule speaks of actual governance, exercising authority. In Scripture, our King Jesus doesn't just reign forever on His eternal throne, but He also rules in other words, he exercises authorities, his authority. He governs currently. He governs. He currently controls all things. I mean, he created all things by his spoken word and now upholds what he created by his spoken word. He manages the affairs of the universe. And that is what it means that he rules in his kingdom. He is sovereign. He is supreme. He rules today. You go like, what about all the evil? He ordains. I mean, what do you think happened in Job? He allows because oftentimes there's a testing, there's a trial, and then there are consequences, and he allows for his scriptures to be true. Why do you think sowing and reaping will be here even after heaven and earth pass away? You know, sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping, and he ordains that principle and that process. So this entire idea of lordship, that God is king over His people and that they submit to His will and they submit to His will and they do His will is fundamentally important to what kingdom means. If you don't think, if you don't have a kingdom mindset, lordship to you is legalism. It's really clear. Let me say that again. If you don't have a kingdom mindset, lordship, in other words, having to obey Christ, to you is legalism. Oh, that's legalism. It's because you don't think, you don't have a kingdom mindset. I'll explain it to you in a little bit. In conclusion then, we have a king, Jesus, who is ruling by saving and by lording it over those whom he saves. We have a king, Jesus, and he rules by saving people and then lording it over them. Number three, there always has to be a people. So we see number one, there has to be a king. Number two, he has to rule. And number three, there has to be a people. Scripturally speaking, the people who is a part of this eternal, unshakable kingdom of God is in the Old Testament, Israel, and in the New Testament is the church. In the Scriptures, the kingdom people are those who have been redeemed by the king and have found themselves under the lordship of that kingdom. So for those who have been redeemed and who have unconditionally submitted their lives to the lordship of Christ, they are a part of the kingdom of God. So we see, for there to be a kingdom, there has to be a king that actually rules over a specific people group. Number four, this king has to have a will. This is either referred to as a law 
or it's referred to as a decree. Because when a king speaks, when he makes a decree, his authority is in his mouth. He speaks a decree, and that decree immediately becomes law of the land, of his kingdom. In the Old Testament, we identify this law as the Torah. In the New Testament, we identify this set of standards as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In, in the epistles, we identify this in Paul's teachings on Christian ethics. So here we see the decree of God. The decree of God or the law of God is the decree of the king, the law of the king, and this is how he rules over those who subject themselves to his lordship. This eager desire to submit to his lordship, to please him, and to follow him as king, this eager desire people have to do that is in fact due to his work in them by grace. I mean, that's why the Bible says God works in you. He's all the while at work in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. Isn't it a fantastic kingdom where this king, He saves us out of darkness. He puts us in His kingdom. And by His grace, He turns us into this new creature who now has desires to submit to Him, to please Him, and to live under His rule willingly. I mean, a real Christian might fall into a sin, but they hate the fact that they did. They are self-correctors. They will chase after making right with their king what they have made wrong, what they have broken. You see, if God did not do that, then He would possibly relive the very thing He had originally in heaven with Lucifer rebelling against him. Today, God's creating a kingdom where there are all these subjects, all these citizens who have become new creatures who desire only but to please their king. Otherwise, if, if you find a Christian who's looking for possible loopholes in how not to have to obey their king, why don't you think that person one day in heaven would do exactly the same thing that Lucifer did in the beginning? See what I'm saying? Why? It would just be, it will just be disaster, chaos all over again. But this time around, God said, no. The real citizens that are actually a part of my kingdom, those are new creatures that I created inside of Christ, God says, who now have a brand new desire to submit themselves to his very decree as king. They want him as king. It's interesting how Israel, unsaved Israel, said, no, we, we, we don't want you as king. We want a king like everyone else. And then God gave them Saul, right? God gave them Saul. But this new creature, this church, this chosen group of people, he works within them both to will and to do His good pleasure by His grace. That's how He rules. He saves them, makes them anew, and then He rules over them. All right, so we see that there has to be a king. He has to rule. There has to be a people. He has to have a will, number four. Number five, this king has to have a territory. He has to have a territory. For there to be a kingdom, there has to be a, there has to be a land over which the king of that kingdom rules. You see, when you look specifically at the Old Testament, you will see the importance of this land promise that God gave the Israelites, right? God always said, there's, you know, Abraham, leave your family, leave, your, leave, leave everything behind and go to a place that I will give you. And then he says, everywhere that you see, I will give you Moses. Wherever you tread your foot, I will give you a land, a promised land I will give you. It was big for them. Because every king has to have a territory. There is no king who does not have a space over which he rules. Now, let me identify that space for you. Are you ready? 
All right, I'm going somewhere, so please tune back in, all right? I want to show you that space, Exodus 19.5. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, if you will submit to my decree, then you shall be my own possession among all the people. You will be my possession. You will be my land. He says, you will be my possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. All right, so the earth is already his. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a kingdom of a holy nation. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You see, the person who is born again by the Spirit of God and is made new and, as a new creature has become a living stone in the kingdom of God. We are living stones, and together we form this place called the temple of God in which God dwells. You are made out of dust, out of dirt. God owns you when you are part of His kingdom, and you become a living stone within this temple within which He lives and over which he rules. King Jesus rules over this person in two ways. He redeems that person, and then he governs him as Lord. This person then marries another person. I'm trying to show you what the kingdom of God looks like. You have this individual person who becomes God's property, because God redeems this, He pays for that ground, your body. With His blood, He purchases that. He redeems it. He puts it now in His kingdom. That person now has a new heart. He's a new creature. He now desires to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Now that person, that individual goes and marries somebody else that's God-fearing. And these two God-fearing people now build together a God-fearing family unit who now belongs to King Jesus. Individually, I belong to King Jesus. I am a citizen in His kingdom. I am a living stone within His temple. I marry a God-fearing woman, and we start a God-fearing family and now, God owns this family unit. And at this point, this family unit then goes and joins a local body, a local church body, who then corporately together as a body belongs to Christ and is submitted to King Jesus' rule over them. As this process expands, so does the kingdom of God expand. But here's the big thing. I wanted to say everything I said and to get to this point. Neither the individual person, the God-fearing family, or the Bible-based local church will disobey their king at the demand of the state. This individual person who has been born, birthed anew, who's now part of God's kingdom, he will never compromise his obedience to his king because the state in which he lived demanded that he does. You see, folks, the moment the government tells Jacques Jacobs, you may no longer pray, at that point, I no longer obey the state. The moment the state comes to 1826 Wedgwood Lane, Schaumburg. Am I allowed to advertise that? Come for coffee, everybody. The moment the state comes to 1826 Wedgwood Lane, Schaumburg, and said, no more praying happens here, we say, this is where we stop obeying you, state. We will no longer submit to what you require because we submit ultimately to what God requires, our ultimate king, right? He is our ultimate king. The moment the state comes here to these four walls, 
this body and says, no more praying to your Jesus. He's no longer your king. We go, actually, that's when we stop obeying the state, right? This is when we start disobeying the state in order to obey our king. The state does not have any authority over this king's property. The state no longer has authority over that, over, over our king and what he has given us. You see, folks, <clears throat> this is why our nation was born. This was the reason for the United States of America. They were searching for a place where people could freely serve their king. This is the idea of the United States of America. So people can freely obey, serve, and give themselves to their king so that their king could rule over them legally. If you think back to most of the martyrs throughout all of history, they were killed, they were murdered, they were thrown to wild animals, hungry animals, they were burnt at the stake. Why were they burnt at the stake? Most people think they were burnt at the stake because they said, I love Jesus. No, you don't love Jesus. Well, I serve my, sa he's my savior. Stop saying he's your savior. If you say, if you stop saying he's your savior, we will not burn you. No, he's my savior. I'll keep saying it. But you see, that's not what happened. Most people think that they're going to have to say, no, Jesus is my savior. And then if they don't stop saying it, the state's going to burn them at the stake. That's not actually what happened. It's because they said, he is my king and my Lord. Because he said, because they said Jesus is my ultimate Lord, the state went, wait a minute, then who are we? <laughs> there shall be no other God but Nebuchadnezzar. There are no other king but Nero. There's, you see, no, 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 Jesus is my king. Okay, well, then we'll burn you. You see, that's why people were martyred. Because they saw Christ as king and they submitted themselves as a citizen to his kingdom over which he rules. And they go like, wait a minute, no, I rule you. And they said, no, Jesus rules us. And that's why they were martyred. You see, they submitted and served their heavenly king instead of Nebuchadnezzar. And that's why they were killed. They were killed by the state not because they believed in a savior, but because they submitted to their king, Jesus, instead of Nero. They submitted and served their Lord and King Jesus instead of Rome. Matthew 6.10 says, Matthew 6.9, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Then he said in verse 10, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth right here as it is in heaven. God's chosen way of establishing His kingdom in the individual, in their family, and in their church family is through your and my prayers. If you have unloved saved, if you have, excuse me, <laughs> if you have saved, if you have loved ones who's unsaved. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> hey, by the way, if you have unloved saved ones, <laughs> You should pray for them. <laughs> that is awesome. I've never heard it said that way. If you have unsaved loved ones, <laughs> how would you to respond? You, you pray for them. That's God's chosen way to reach them is through your prayers. Hey, I was just testing you and nobody said anything. <laughs> Are you guys there? <laughs> That's awesome. It's God's chosen way for you and I. To establish His kingdom here on this earth is through our prayers. And how's His kingdom established? By the next person He reaches because of your prayers. How was His kingdom established? By that person that was reached by your prayers? That person getting married and starting a family? And them joining a church family? 
Now, you can join a church family if you're single. I'm just giving you a process, you know, to think through. So we saw the kingdom of God exists. He has a territory, and it's you and I. So when is this kingdom? When is this kingdom? You see, with Christ's first coming, we see the inauguration of His kingdom. But with His second coming, we see the consummation of His kingdom. In Luke 17, 20, it says this, Pharisees asked Jesus when God's kingdom was coming. You see, they were so preoccupied with this idea, by the way, in the Old Testament. They kept on asking, so Jesus, when's your kingdom coming? When are you going to establish your kingdom? You see, in their minds, they saw property, they saw borders, they saw a flag, they saw entry points, and they saw people with, with spears and, 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 I almost said guns, and knives, you see. That's what they saw. And then they said, Jesus, when, when are you going to establish your kingdom? Because can I be part of that? And by the way, when you establish your kingdom, can I have a very prominent position in your kingdom? This is what they saw. This is what they were hoping for. And Jesus answers this. The Pharisees asked Jesus when God's kingdom was coming in verse 20 of Luke 17. God's kingdom isn't coming with signs that are easily noticed. You're not going to see borders. You're not going to see walls. You're not going to see ports of entry. You're not going to see guards with guns and knives. It's not easily noticed. There are no, there are no uh, borders and there are no flags. Nor will people say, look, here it is, or there it is. Don't you see? Jesus says, God's kingdom is already among you. I love how Jesus says, don't you see? To the Pharisees, don't you see? Because in John 3, 3, he says, unless a man is born again, he will not, never even see the kingdom of God. He knew they couldn't see it. And he goes like, don't you see? It's already here. And they're like, where? <laughs> Did you take over? <laughs> he says, don't you see? It's already here. It's among you. There is part of my property. There is my property. There. There's my territory. That family right there, 1826, my, you know what, Nero, you can never have, you can never force your way on them. You can kill them, but you can't change them. They won't go away. They're there. My kingdom has been established. But the consummation of his kingdom is the establishment of the new Jerusalem, the new earth, and the new heaven as predicted in Revelation 21. That means the kingdom of God is here and it is there. The kingdom of God has been, the inauguration of the kingdom of God has taken place. That's when John said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is here among you. The inauguration of the kingdom, it is now here and now it's being built. And eventually the consummation of the kingdom when the new heaven and the new earth is established. Number four, how to respond to the kingdom of God. How to respond to this kingdom of God. So, we see the importance of the kingdom. It's front and center in the scriptures. We understand the concept of this kingdom that Jesus says is now with you. It's, it's, it's among you that it's individuals made out of, out of dust <laughs> that he now redeems and rules over. We understand this concept of His kingdom and that it expands every time somebody's born again. We get it, and then we get that one day this kingdom that He started will be consummated by the new Jerusalem and the new, earth, the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. But the question is, how do you and I respond to this kingdom? What is our response supposed to be? Is it supposed to be just intellectually ascending to a concept? Or is it supposed to be an application? Do we actually do something now that we understand? We have been given this wonderful nation so that we can exercise 
our scriptural kingdom rights and submit ourselves to our scriptural king, Jesus. That's why we love living in the United States of America. You see, if you find somebody who tries to shut the church up, guess what? There's Nero. There's Rome. There's Nebuchadnezzar. There's that person who's... Why are they trying to shut the church up? Because they don't want anybody submitted to somebody else's rule except theirs. They want to be king. That's why we love a government that fights for small governments, <laughs> right? So how do we respond to this kingdom since we are free to respond to it right now? But guess what? One day you probably won't be free to respond to this kingdom as you ought to, and you will be persecuted for it. But how are you supposed to respond to it? It's very clear. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first His kingdom. You have to do what? You have to seek it. I thought God was sovereign. I don't have to do anything. Everything's already decided. Folks, there's a sovereignty of God and there's a responsibility of man. For one, here's our responsibility. You seek the kingdom of God. You go after it. You got to do something. You got to take responsibility upon yourself and seek out this kingdom. What I'm doing here for you today is simply I'm initiating a seeking after this kingdom of God so that we can submit ourselves to the king of that kingdom and serve him. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33, and his righteousness. And then all these things will be added to you. But what does that look like? You know, being raised in charismatic churches and Pentecostal churches and word faith churches and word based churches and faith movement, <coughs> all of the above. That verse is being quoted very often. What does that verse mean? But seek first the kingdom of God. We find that it starts with but, the word but. In other words, instead of. So what goes before? You have to know what goes before in order to know that you have to do this instead of that. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. He was talking about people who chase after things of this life, food, clothing, shelter, comfort, and everything else that they might want to spend on themselves. He says, okay, I know you're searching after all those things, but I'm saying to you rather seek first before any of that. Seek first. In other words, seek tells me that I have to do the seeking. But it also says when I have to do the seeking first. Before, before you're chasing after everything else in this world, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a family, whether it be a career path, whether it be money, whether it be a 401k, whether it be a wonderful retirement, whether it be health, whether it be anything, seek first before all of those the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Okay, well, how do we seek His righteousness? We want to be made right with God. Well, how? We've found that the only possible way of being made right with God is through Jesus Christ. And He's not the only way simply because He wants to be and He wants to be, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. It's not, it's not because of that. No, it's because there is no other option. There is no other perfect one that can give Himself willingly as the perfect sacrifice Lamb of God to be slain on behalf of you. You see, if Jesus had one sin then he would have had to die for himself, right? But he didn't die for himself. That would have been a payment he made for himself, but he didn't have to make a payment for himself. He actually came and made a payment on our behalf for us, not for him. He, was, he is the only way because there's no other option. And so when we seek his righteousness, 
There's only one possible way for us to find it. It's in Christ. But also when we seek His kingdom, we are seeking Him as King. We are seeking His rulership. We are seeking His lordship. We are seeking His decree. We are seeking His word. We are seeking His law. We seek to submit ourselves to it, to follow it as citizens of heaven. Seek ye first His kingdom and His righteousness. Righteousness found in Him alone. And then all these things will be added to you. Here are a few ways of seeking first the kingdom of God. And then I'll close. Number one, enter the kingdom first. There's only one entrance. And that's through the door of regeneration. John 3, 3. Unless a man is born again, he will not even see this kingdom. He won't even recognize where it is. He couldn't identify with it. And today my goal is to help you make sure that while this culture is on fire and while we celebrate this wonderful opportunity to freely serve our king in the United States, we see all these problems. We see all these people hating on this free land we stand on. What are we to do? <laughs> we ought to seek his kingdom first, identify with it, and we can identify with it because we are born again. So first is seeking him first. His kingdom first is to enter the kingdom first. Surrender to his rule, his lordship. Number two, make the kingdom your greatest interest. Make the kingdom your greatest interest. People have so many interests. And that's the downside to living in such an affluent world as we do here in the West. People have so many interests, whether it be their career path or whether it be friendship circles or whether it be prominence or whether it be <clears throat> wealth. They have so many interests. They're always asking questions, how's my 401k? How's the stock market doing? How's my retirement doing? How's my health doing? How's the housing market doing? How's my career doing? How's the position I have at my career going? How's they always have these questions, and those are fine to have, except for they shouldn't have your greatest interest. Your and my greatest interest should be, how is the kingdom of God? How is my partic participation in the kingdom of God? Am I, a part, am I an active part of this kingdom of God? Folks, there's no such thing as a non-practicing Catholic. <clears throat> That's about as possible as, this, as being a non-practicing husband, as, as a non-practicing human. I'm human, but I don't participate in the breathing part of humanity. I don't breathe. I don't <laughs> like, I'm a non-practicing somebody. That's like... That's like the height of hypocrisy. That's like... <laughs> I am this, but only in theory, because in reality, I'm actually not it. And only, <laughs> only in a deconstructionist society is that even possible to think. I'm a non-practicing someone. Folks, if you are a citizen of kingdom, of this kingdom, you are a practicing citizen of this kingdom. It has your greatest interest. Number three, give the, give the first of your income to the kingdom. Instead of seeing how much is left over at the end of the month or at the end of the week, why don't we start with God first? Check this out. It's logical. If I have a pizza, all right, and I, and I say, okay, folks, we have 10 kids. To the first kid, I'm going to give like 50% of this pizza. Now I've got nine kids left. And I have only half of the pizza left. Now I have to take what's left. And now I have to... Um, I have to divide that last half into nine small little pieces, right? And so really, I am giving to the nine kids 
based on what I gave to the first kid. <laughs> you know, like what I did first determined how I was going to manage the rest of what I have left. All right. So I tailor make with the last 50%, I tailor make the last 50% based on what I chose to do with the first 50%. And so Tina and I have decided this, you know, that we are going to live our lives in such a way that when we get to the end of our lives, we're going to look back and we're going to see the wake of a family who has been highly vested in the kingdom of God. No regrets. Nothing to be ashamed of. Just no regrets. God, I knew you had a kingdom. I saw Christ as my king. He was the one who lorded over me. I submitted myself to him. He had my greatest interest at heart. I entered first by going through Christ. I chased after, searched after his kingdom first. And then I threw my life into his kingdom. I have no regrets. So Tina and I, we decided, you know, that pizza principle has been true for me for a very long time. <laughs> very long time. There are a lot of things we don't do as a family. We don't get to do. Not because we don't have, we don't have money to do it. No, it's just we don't do those things with that money. You follow what I'm saying? What we choose to do first determines how we live for the rest of the month. And so... Now, my life is built around whom I cho what I chose to do with God instead of I choose to give God what's left over after I've decided what to do with my life. Does it make sense? <laughs> when, how do we put God first? How do we seek first the kingdom of God if not seeking Him first in all that we do and with all that we have been given? I've had to really pray through this verse because I go, like, how do I seek God first in my life? Because my life has so many compartments. I have, a, I have a wife. I have children. How do I seek God first there? I have seven days a week. How do I seek God there? I have 24 hours every day. How do I seek Him first there? You see, I have a financial life. How do I seek Him first there? I have a church of how do I seek Him first here? How do I seek God first and His righteousness with the life that has been given me? So I realize I enter the kingdom first, number one. Number two, I make the kingdom my greatest, highest interest. Number three, I seek Him first with the substance I received, the substance I traded, my time, my effort, my giftings, and my abilities for. Check this out. I seek Him first with the substance I traded my time, my giftings, my abilities, and my efforts, and the opportunities that has been afforded me in this beautiful country, United States of America. What did I trade my 9 to 5 for? What did I give my life what do I get in exchange for what I gave my life to? Okay, well, that, I seek God first with that. How about my week? You see, I commit the first day of every week to God's kingdom. That's an Old Testament principle. I don't want to call it a law because I don't want you to shut me down. Like, oh, you're legalistic. I'm telling you. There's a truth as to why God said rest. There is a day in the week that we give to the Lord. There is a day in the week where we shut down everything else and we say, Lord, I seek you the first day of the week. The Lord's day is what they called it in the early church. Not the day of the Lord. That's the day when God comes to judge. That's the day of the Lord. His day of vengeance. But the Lord's day is this day that you choose to say, I give it to you. 
I seek first your kingdom, its interests, before I seek mine. I dedicate my best energy to the kingdom. See, I'm pretty much guilty over there in a big way where you take care of everything you have to all day long and then, oh, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. <laughs> you know, we oftentimes do that to the Lord. We do that to our families, our children. But really, what about giving the best energy you have to your king whom you serve? How do I make him first? How do I seek his kingdom first? By viewing everything through a kingdom filter. As you read and hear the news, apply your kingdom filter. I mean, this is so good for me. Look at world events through the lens of God's kingdom. Well, <laughs> if ever that was true, this is a good time to be true for you and I. You and I have been afforded this wonderful nation so that we could be good citizens of heaven. And when this culture burns, praise God, we're citizens of heaven. We're in this world. We're not of it. We don't represent it to God. We represent heaven to earth. Number eight, choose to decide and plan using kingdom criteria. Every time you make a decision, can you filter it through scriptures? And then finally, I wrote, seek the salvation of your children above all else. Seek the salvation of your loved ones above all else. Seek the salvation of your loved ones above all else. Because the kingdom of God needs to be established. And the way you can be effective in establishing the kingdom through your life is to reach those you're closest to. Reach them. Where are they? Do you invite them? Do you minister to you? Do, you? do you pray for them? Go pick them up. Drive them here. Be an example to them. But seek the salvation of those closest to you. There's a wonderful promise attached to this command. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of His righteousness. There's a wonderful promise attached. It says in all these things shall be added to you. Remember the verse starts, but instead seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then it's the promise says, and all these things will be added to you. God will take care of those things initially He told you not to chase after. God is basically saying, if you take care of my interests, I, God, your king will take care of yours. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, in a day and age where we can look at culture and fear, we choose to look at kingdom and rejoice. In a day and age where we could look at the culture and be angry with what people are doing, with what's being given to them, ungrateful, unthankful, a rebellious mob. God, we can look to your kingdom and say, God, I understand. I understand why unregenerate people act like unregenerate people. And I understand why a new creature desires what a new creature desires, which is your rulership. Your sovereignty and your supremacy over those who belong to you. Build your kingdom, God. Build your kingdom in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our church, in our nation. I pray in Jesus' name. While every head's bowed and every eye's closed, if you are here and you're saying, Jacques, I need to be in the kingdom of God. I feel like I'm standing on the outside looking in. I know that I need to make right with God. I have a desperate need to be made right. If that's you, 
I have a scriptural encouragement for you. The Bible talks about salvation and says, Seek, you seek, and keep on seeking, and you will find. You knock, and keep on knocking, and the door will be open for you. You ask, and keep on asking, and it will be answered. Don't look for somebody to affirm your salvation because you recited a prayer. No, you seek after God. You seek His kingdom and His lordship over you. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then He saves you. And you and I have to seek after that. But the promise is if you do search, you will find. The promise is is if you do knock, the door will be open. The promise is if you do ask, then you will receive an answer from God. And just as God rules and reigns by His spoken word, so I as a father, I reign and I rule in my home by speaking. I tell my children what it is I desire for them to do. I, I govern by speaking. And so God says to you, if you speak, if you use your mouth, if you confess with your mouth, you use your authority, and you say from today on, self, I deny you, and I confess that Jesus instead is my Lord. If I believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead, then and then only will He save me. In Jesus' name.